Well, welcome to all of you joining me this morning uh, from wherever you are. I hope that uh, our time together would not only encourage you, uh, but lead you into a time of solemn reflection uh, on the significance of this day, uh, this Good Friday. With all that Good Friday uh, represents, one of the greatest components to our remembrance and celebration of it is that it's a redemption story, a story about rescue and salvation. It's a story about freedom. Who doesn't appreciate or love that kind of story? I mean, I, I love stories where there's an underdog or someone's in trouble and someone else is able to come along and support them or help them out from that trial or circumstance. When we look at our culture, uh, at least in the entertainment side of things, we have seen over the last decade and a little bit more uh, a huge focus on the superhero. Uh, with movies that convey a story with similar elements, there's a hero, a crisis point, Someone is in harm's way. Uh, They've been captured or something by a villain or a force or whatever the case may be. And a hero comes along and risks their life to save them. Think about any of the movies where the hero saves the day. Why are we drawn to these? Why do we love that story so much? And why do they inspire us? Why does it bring the sort of feeling and emotion within that they do? It speaks so much more than to simply say, oh, that was a great movie, uh, or that was a great novel. I really appreciated some of the characters. Stories of redemption engage us, because deep down, we all resonate with the characters we are watching or reading about. Some days we wish we were the hero who comes along, saves the day, brings order back from chaos and safety from danger. And then there are some days, maybe most days, uh, where we feel like we're the one who is caught by the villain. We're put in harm's way, and we are crying out for help and rescue. This is the kind of story when we listen to or read about Good Friday. It's a beautiful story of redemption, a story of people longing for freedom, for rescue. But like any really good story, we need a good backstory that paves the way for us to truly appreciate the significance of the story's conclusion. You see, God's people experienced years and years of blessing in the days of Joseph. And if you remember the story of Joseph, uh, his brothers didn't like him too much, threw him, sold him into slavery uh, to Egypt. And he did these amazing things, and he eventually worked his way up to the top to become a provincial leader in Egypt. And Joseph was respected throughout the entire region for his efforts and where he helped pave the way for some of the, the means that they wouldn't experience famine the way that they did. He helped them so that they wouldn't experience it as drastically as they could have. With his wisdom and planning capability, he was able to help a whole country navigate and avert a huge crisis. Without him, they certainly would have experienced a massive tragedy on a, on a huge scale. Many would have died. But because of him, Pharaoh allows his whole family to come and live with him in Egypt and experience prosperity and safety and blessing. And as the story progresses, you begin to see Israel grows and it becomes this massive people. It thrives and is amazing. Uh, And while it all seems amazing, when we turn to the story of Exodus, just the next chapter, so Joseph is in Genesis, we go to Exodus and everything changes. Think of any story where the villain begins to have any sort of dominance uh, and is driving the story forward in a way where you're just like, oh, this is so painful, this is hurt. When is it going to be resolved? When will the hero come in and save the day? It's unbearable to watch sometimes when the villain is getting their way. 
And in the opening passages of Exodus, we read it in chapter uh, 8, or in chapter 1, verse 8. Uh, it says this, A new king came to power in Egypt and knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. And you can also add to that as well. It doesn't say it, but he knew nothing of Joseph's God either. Because Joseph, over and over again, made fully aware to everyone that everything he was doing was by the power of God. But it says a new king came and didn't know Joseph or what he had done. And right after this, the king in his fear of how great a population Israel was becoming, he enslaves them. He says if we can keep them under this, this dominant rule and reign over them, they won't continue to grow. We'll, we'll be able to crush their spirit and prevent them from becoming a nation that might actually rise up against us. And so in his fear, he enslaves them. And nothing about it is pleasant at all. It wasn't a, it wasn't a happy slavery. None ever is. But he wasn't, he wasn't lenient with them whatsoever. He aimed to break their spirit. And he aimed to take away their freedom, freedom by whipping and beating them. And he makes them work incredibly hard. He puts them to tasks that are so difficult, nigh impossible for them to accomplish. And he's ruthless with them when they can't complete the tasks. In Genesis 15, verse 13, it actually tells us they were enslaved for around 400 years. That is a long time to be in oppression. 400 years of slavery. And by the end of Exodus chapter 2, we read about Israel's groaning and longing for freedom. They cry out for help and God hears them and knows that this is now the time to act. You can read the whole story for yourself uh, from Exodus chapter 1 to 10. It gives the whole thing from the time Moses is called by God to all the plagues unfolding and Pharaoh finally letting the people go. But God raises up Moses and uses him to cause Pharaoh to let those people go. God's people. There were 10 plagues in all. But I want to talk about the 10th one in particular as it is really the most significant of the plagues. You see, Pharaoh, after all of the other plagues, all the way up to nine, refuses, refuses, and his hard heart will not let these people go. And throughout the time when Moses is interacting with Pharaoh, the main request he says to Pharaoh is, let my people go so that they can come and worship me. And Pharaoh refuses to let them have that freedom to worship their God. And so God, through Moses, tells Pharaoh that at midnight, he's going to pass through Egypt and every family's firstborn son will die. From the greatest person to the least, everyone will not be spared. And then God then gives instructions to his people in order to spare them from the catastrophe he is bringing to the region. You see, what God instructs them to do is very significant. And I want you to pay, pay close attention to how this, how this is, has described. You see, they were supposed to take a perfect lamb. Perfect unblemished, not a single defect, not a spot, not a a wart, nothing. It had to be absolutely 100% perfect. And they were to take that lamb and kill it and take the blood that is drained from it and smear that blood over the doorposts of their homes. Every single person of Israel was called to do this. And in Exodus chapter 12, uh, verses 12 to 14, listen to how this how this is read as God is talking uh, to Moses. So in verse 12 uh, to 14, this is what it says. On that night, I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. 
I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. But the blood on your doorposts will serve as a sign, marking the houses where you are staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and this plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is a day to remember. Each year, from generation to generation, you must celebrate it as a special festival to the Lord. This is a law for all time. So God has just given Israel this way out from their circumstance. They were just as much under the possibility of losing their children, but God gives them mercy and explains to them all the things that they need to do in order to avert that crisis. And so the people obediently follow the instructions, and that night, as it says in in verse 12 all the way up, or in in chapter 12, verse 30, it says that the people of Egypt woke up and there was a loud wailing throughout the night. Can you imagine waking up to wailing, these screams of terror of parents who had lost their children? A loud wailing. And shortly after this, Pharaoh finally concedes and tells Moses to take the people and go. They're free. And the freedom in and of itself is not fully realized in that moment. You have to read the rest of the story to realize that it's still difficult they're free from Egypt and they get to run, but then they move into another region where they're, they're not sure where they're going. They haven't fully realized the freedom until a little bit later. But for now, they are out of captivity. This is the story of Passover, which is celebrated this week. And it is a week-long commemoration of that story in Exodus that we just laid out where God intervenes and helped his people find freedom. This is a story passed down from generation to generation as parents talk about the faithfulness of God. But they don't just talk about how the amazing faithfulness was this beautiful, free experience that they received. They also have to talk about the oppression of their people under Pharaoh's slavery. You can't have the blessing without understanding the curse that came with it. And when we get to the New Testament, we find in Jesus' last week, he's with his disciples, and they're celebrating Passover. Jesus, being a good Jew, with his other disciples being good Jews, they reflect and remember the story. We read the story as the Last Supper, where Jesus is sharing his last meal with his disciples before he goes to the cross. It is significant that they are doing this during Passover. All throughout the Gospels, there are little signposts along the way that leave little markers that as a modern reader or modern hearers, we can easily miss. I mean, even when you go back to the story in Exodus, the the instructions that God is giving to the people says, when I come and see, it'll be a sign on your doorposts and I will pass over. Even the Passover in of itself was a signpost pointing to something greater that we can easily miss if we just read it at first glance and miss out. When John the Baptist is doing his ministry, he sees Jesus coming along and he declares, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And after Jesus' baptism, he is brought into the wilderness for 40 days. And as it goes on, miracle after miracle, teaching after teaching, Jesus is pointing to something much greater than his wise words and good deeds and miracles. As significant as the Passover story is, it still points to something greater. 
You see, when God swept over the land of Egypt, the Exodus story never paints the picture that Israel was exempt from the same thing that Egypt was about to receive. Though they were enslaved to Egypt, both people, both groups were under sin. And being under sin, subject to punishment. And that punishment is death. God cannot let sinfulness go unpunished. It has to be dealt with. Romans 3 tells us, For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Israel and Egypt alike. Israel would not have been spared if they did not obey the instructions that God had given them through Moses. The Passover, while a story of God's mercy and grace to his own people, reminded them that they too were not beyond God's dealings with sinfulness. Even though he spared them, they were not perfect people. Hundreds and hundreds of years after the Exodus story, we still find the people of God sacrificing animals on altars for the forgiveness of sin in order to maintain their relationship with him. It's not a great long-term solution for our human behavior. And if you read the Old Testament, they were continuously falling into sin, continuously disobeying God. Sacrifice was as much a part of their life as eating and breathing air was. It was part of their community But it would never, ever be enough. There would never be a time when they sacrificed another lamb or another animal and God would finally say, okay, that's enough. You don't have to do this anymore. You've reached the quota. You're now completely forgiven. So long as there was sin in the world, there needed to be forgiveness through sacrifice. Justice demands it. God's justice demands it. It was the only way they can continue living lest they experience God's wrath and judgment on them for their behavior. I mean, even if you go to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, later on in the New Testament, it says this as much, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And when Jesus comes, God had set in motion this amazing and yet awful plan. The punishment for sin is death. Forgiveness, therefore, can only be accomplished through a perfect sacrifice. And Jesus, in all of his perfection, glory, and splendor, says, I will go. I'll be the sacrifice. As the disciples in Christ are sharing their last meal, look at what takes place in Luke chapter 22, verses 19 to 20. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to read it. But this is what he says. They're at their last meal, and they're, they're about to, to have it. And Jesus, it says this, he took some bread And gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces. And gave it to the disciples saying. This is my body which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper. He took another cup of wine and said. This cup is the new covenant. I want you to hear that word again. This new covenant. An unbreakable promise. This cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood which is poured out for you. Many of us have heard the Easter story many, many times. And many of us have taken it for granted. But the Easter story could not be understood apart from Good Friday. You could not have the blessing without the curse. It was on this day we do just as Christ said, remember what I did and why it's important. Remember who I am. It's a promise being made. Not only is salvation going to be made for all, but forgiveness will no longer require 
an animal sacrifice. I am going to sacrifice my own life so that you no longer will be under the wrath of God's holiness, his justice and judgment. I am paying this debt in full. And after this supper, Christ is betrayed. They've broken bread together. They've drank and Christ leaves and they're betrayed. And thereafter, he's presented before a court for crimes he never committed. For saying things he never said. And he is painted as a common criminal. A charlatan claiming to be something he is not. This man claims to be God. And the people shout abuses at him and yelling, crucify him. And the very people he looked on with compassion, the very same people whose lives were touched by his words, his actions and his love, now shout, kill him. And their demands are heard. And Pilate, who himself could find no wrong in Jesus, condemns him to death. He is beaten, flogged mercilessly, spat on, sworn at, kicked, punched, mocked. And even after all of that, he is forced to carry his own cross as the wood of the cross digs into his wounds, scraping his back. And he is weary from exhaustion and blood loss. And so another is called up to take up his cross and bring it to the place of execution. Nails, one at a time, through each hand, through both feet. Unfathomable anguish. And pain. The cross is raised up for his mangled body to be displayed before all, to bring shame and death. Yet, as he is hanging there between two other criminals, amidst the shame, the mockery, Jesus, in his love for people and in his compassion, says this in Luke 23, verse 34 Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. These same people celebrating the Passover where they sacrificed and shed blood, remembering of the time when God brought them out of Egypt, had no idea that this new Passover lamb was shedding his own blood for them in order to not bring them pain and suffering and death, but to bring them freedom, life, and joy. To pave the way for the real promised land A land flowing with grace and love. Salvation. They were slaughtering another lamb. They just didn't know it. In order to fully appreciate what Jesus has done, we have to look back. We have to look back at the story. We have to look back at our story. What we could never do for ourselves, He did for us. So that we could be free from the slavery of sin and death. Israel's story is the story of all of us. All of us need that same mercy and yet no amount of sacrificing, no amount of doing the right thing or the best thing or the good thing all the time will ever make us right with God. We have all sinned. No one person in the history of humanity has ever been perfect except Jesus Christ. As such, we are under God's wrath. But thanks to the perfect Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world, we can experience freedom and grace. This is the Passover story and each one of us is a part of it. The question that we all have to ask at the end of the day is this. Do you belong to Pharaoh or to Jesus? Do you belong to the world of sin and decay and death or to the kingdom of God of life? 
and salvation. My prayer for you this Good Friday is to read this story afresh. Read the Exodus story. Read the Passover story of Jesus and his disciples in the New Testament. Read them afresh and reflect on our Savior who saved us and brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. While this day symbolizes death and darkness, we look to Sunday when death is defeated and light overcomes. Amen.